Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Inquisition. It's a word that conjures up terrible images of persecution, torture, and execution. But it's the Spanish Inquisition that has most likely created this perception, because it executed thousands of so-called heretics in a 200-year period. Yet the Spanish Inquisition was just one of the Inquisitions in the early modern period. You see, each Inquisition was a tribunal or court in the Roman Catholic Church, and each tribunal had its own jurisdiction. The Venetian Inquisition was therefore separate from the Spanish Inquisition. But did this mean that the tribunals operated in different ways or were they united in aims, methods and effects? To find out, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Nick Davidson. Professor Davidson is an Emeritus Fellow of St Edmund Hall at the University of Oxford. I remember his lectures when I was an undergraduate that were so inspiring. A significant proportion of his long and illustrious academic career has been spent researching the religious divisions created by the Reformation. Spending many summers in the Venetian archives has led him to write The Venetian Inquisition and Conformity and Dissent in Renaissance Venice, which he's here to talk about today. You'll be very intrigued to discover that something we think of as an organisation that inspired fear actually tells us much about the power of ordinary people maybe even tells us something about toleration. Professor Davidson, Nick, it is so wonderful to have you join me on Not Just the Tudors. I'm really delighted to have a chance to talk to you about your work on the Venetian Inquisition. I suppose the first thing to say, of course, is that the Venetian Inquisition is not nearly as famous as the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, we partly have to thank Monty Python for that. But were they part of the same organisation? In some ways, yes, in that they were both judicial tribunals that investigated religious offences and, of course, punished them and disciplined contemporary religious belief and behaviour. But no, there were big differences between them in the way they were set up the dates they were set up, the ways they were organised and so on. So I'm afraid it's a sort of yes and no answer. So did they have kind of different ends in mind or were they hoping to achieve the same thing? I think in many ways they were hoping to achieve the same thing. That's right. Where they differed in some ways was who controlled them. The Spanish Inquisition tribunals and indeed Portuguese Inquisition tribunals were really run by the state. They were subject to control by a council of the state in each of Spain and Portugal. The Venetian Inquisition, like the other Italian Inquisitions, was subject to control from Rome, from the papacy directly. And so jurisdictionally, they were different. Okay. So for those who aren't familiar with Venice in the late 16th century, early 17th century, can you give us some sort of sense of the scene? What was it like 
was it a place where there was great religious tumult with the, the background of the Reformation? And also, what attracted you to working on it? <laughs> well, that's a lot of questions in one it go. It is, it is. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> certainly, Venice, it's worth remembering, was one of the biggest cities in Europe in this period, about population about 200,000, roughly the same size, perhaps maybe a little bit less than Naples and Paris at the time. Northeast Italy was a flourishing agricultural area, and Venice itself was a massive financial, trading, mercantile, industrial centre. And of course, beautifully located for north-south and east-west trade, north-south from North Europe to South Europe and back, east-west across the Mediterranean. And so from Venice, if you wanted to, you could get goods either from Venice or through Venice down to the Mediterranean, out to the east, and so from there across land to Southern Asia and Eastern Asia. So they've got these tremendous trade links. And it was a genuinely multicultural city, as you might expect from those connections. There was large Eastern communities, Armenians, people like that, Eastern Christians, Greeks, and so on, there were large Jewish communities, Muslims, good number of Sub-Saharan Africans, and interestingly, quite a few Protestants, German Protestant communities, English Protestant communities. And there was no ban on those non-Catholic communities exercising, believing what they wanted to believe and the way they wanted to practice, as long as they did not disrupt the residual Catholic community in those cities. So I think from the Protestant point of view, if Protestantism is coming from the north, they did see Venice as potentially a very rich area for conversions and possibly for subversion of Catholicism more generally. And I suppose that's why I first became interested in it. As a student and undergraduate, I'd become very interested in that transition from late medieval to early modern. And one of the big things, of course, that happens there is the crack up of the Catholic consensus after about 1500, when the Protestants, uh, of course, seize control power in parts of Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Scotland, places like that. But in the south of Europe, of course, the Protestant Reformation did not succeed in the long run, hardly at all in places like Portugal and Spain. And for most of Italy, not successful either. And the question that first drew me into research, I think, was not why did the Protestant Reformation succeed, but why did it fail where it did fail, as it did in most of Italy? And the reason I was drawn to Venice is because that was one city where the papacy in particular thought it might succeed, precisely because it was such a multivariant type of community in itself and open to so many influences from outside. And the papacy was genuinely concerned that the Protestant communities in Venice and its access to Protestants from elsewhere in Europe would help it turn Protestant in time. So that was the first reason I found it interesting. The second was because it has a huge Venetian Inquisition archive, about 70,000 people were tried by the Inquisition from the 1540s to its closure in the late 1790s, many of whom accused of Protestantism or equivalent beliefs. They tried other things as well. But I thought that was where I would find out both what the attraction of Protestantism was, but also perhaps why it failed. These are brilliant questions and what a promising archive. So when you first went off to work in Venice, were you... Did you have a particular set of those records that you wanted to look at? You, you were particularly interested, say, in investigating people who had converted to Protestantism and were being tried? 
Yes, that's right. That was my initial <laughs> sort of PhD question. Out of those many thousands of trials, of course, many of them are not for Protestantism. They're for other things which we might discuss later. But I was just going to pick out those which were for Protestantism. But I felt it was necessary nonetheless to look at some of the other trials for other offences, simply in order to be able to put those Protestant trials in some sort of context and get a, a sense of what the Inquisition was trying to do more generally. And I suppose that's what in the end, fed into my growing interest in the Inquisition as an institution, as a process in many ways. How did it go about its business? You know, what was it really trying to achieve? What were its advantages, its problems, its successes, its failures, and so on? And so as I continued my research, I suppose, into Protestants and Protestantism and so on, I found out more and more about other offences and other suspects and therefore stumbled into a rather different, very different, I suppose, and new subject for me, which is the Inquisition as an institution, more generally, I suppose, the control of belief and behaviour in this very multicultural society. Okay, so let's dig into some of that then. Tell me a bit about the Inquisition as an institution. How did it operate? It was like a court, a judicial organisation. It had been in Venice actually since the late 13th century, the inquisitors were appointed by Rome, by the Pope, and their powers were delegated by the Pope, which of course meant their powers were very different to those of other church authorities, bishops and people like that in Catholic dioceses. By 1400, in fact, the Inquisition across Europe was established pretty well everywhere, except interestingly, the British Isles, Scandinavia and Castile, oddly. But few of those medieval Inquisition tribunals were still really very active by the time you get to the late 15th century. So in the late 15th century and the early 16th century, the papacy tries to revive the whole institution across territories where it's still operating. Spanish tribunals in Castile were introduced from 1478. Portuguese Inquisitions were revived in 1536. And in 1542, the papacy created a new central organisation to manage and control the Italian Inquisition tribunals, of which by 1700, there are actually 46 across the whole of Italy. And the congregation in Rome also controlled the activities of a few more in places like Croatia, France, Germany and Malta as well. The Maltese Inquisition is really very interesting, very rich. And therefore, the 1540s, right through to the 1790s, the Inquisition is investigating a whole range of beliefs and, as I say, very large numbers of suspects. Some trials are very quick, might last just a day or two. Some lasted a long, long time. The longest, I think, is that of a 16th century bishop called Pier Paolo Vergerio, which lasted from 1544 to 1563, nearly 20 years. He was actually out of Italy for most of the time. They were following up all his connections and trying to track down all his followers and his friends and his relatives and so on to see what they were doing. So there's a huge variety of types and lengths of trials. Isn't that interesting? In my work, which is not nearly such a big archive, but working on the equivalent of a church court among the Protestants in the south of France, some people have always said, you know, how how can you quantify them? And I always think it's the length of cases that vary so much. I mean, you can't, because you can't say that's one case, the case that lasts 20 years by comparison to another one that's a few sentences. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, this is an interesting aspect of the history of the archive itself. What we have now is the archive as it was organised by archivists in Venice in the 19th century. Quite what it existed before then is hard to track down. But what they did, of course, very reasonably and systematically in the 19th century was put together all the different papers they could find, which they thought 
were connected to individual trials. And so now what you've got is uh, 160-odd boxes, A4-type boxes, about three inches tall, in each case, just full of these folders with the papers organised in ways the 19th century archivists thought they ought to be organised. So you're right. Some of these, are, these trials are just for one person. Some of them are for dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And often you find stray papers in the wrong folder you know, that ought to be connected with some other trial altogether, sometimes in a different box. And who knows what historians in the 20th and 21st centuries have also done to mix things up. So it's a fascinating archive to work through, I think. And you just don't know what you're going to find. It's true. And as for getting statistics, you're right. It's very hard, really, to be precise about how many trials for what offences, not least because so many people were tried for more than one offence. And that's so interesting. I don't think we think or at least talk enough about that process of kind of unpacking an archive. You know, what you've got to do as much as understand the 16th century content is get into the mindset of the 19th century archivist, kind of work backwards to figure that out. So then you can think about where they where else they might have put stuff that you'd be interested in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And of course, there's a lot of material coming into the Venetian archive as well from other sources, uh, correspondence, copies of trials from elsewhere, information from other church courts, from other Venetian courts. The Venetian state had courts, again, that dealt with a number of religious offences like blasphemy. is a fascinating Venetian tribunal that deals with blasphemy and various other types of offence as well. And often there's a good deal of correspondence between these different archives. And sometimes what we have in the Inquisition Tribunal archive doesn't exist anymore in other archives at all. So again, just trying to track down what exactly the tribunal itself did and what they received from elsewhere can be quite tricky. So how would a case come before the Inquisition? Is this a situation where people are denouncing their neighbours or are they relying on gossip or, or do we have kind of agents of the Inquisition proactively seeking out offences? Three, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, formally, and I think in reality, a lot of trials started with a denunciation, someone coming to the tribunal and saying, my neighbour, someone I know has done this, or said this, I think you want to investigate. Sometimes it's done by letter. The letters could be anonymous, of course. We don't know necessarily always who wrote them. But it was also possible for the Inquisition to start an investigation on the basis of information it had picked up elsewhere, just rumours, as you say, things that people had told priests that they then passed on to the Inquisitor that were really not terribly well authenticated at the time, but which the authorities in the Inquisition thought worth investigating. And of course, cases, reports, information could be passed from other cities, from other tribunals as well. We understand that so-and-so who was in this city, in central Italy, is now in Venice, please investigate him. We think he's a, a heretic, a blasphemer, someone who's sexually in, out of control and so on. So a whole series of ways the trials could begin. That's right. It always feels that it was an age that very much was validating nosy parkers and malicious people and just sort of allowing them a free scope to exercise that malice. Yes, that's right. I mean, in theory, if you made a false accusation, you might yourself come under some sort of investigation and possibly punishment. But that doesn't actually happen very often, I think. And you're right. And I suppose one of the more depressing things about this is just how popular the institution was as an audience for allegations, accusations, <laughs> charges and so on from neighbours and business partners and so on. It feels to me like there's perhaps 
a piece of work one could do in trying to trace back the people who were denouncing them. But anyway, that's that's probably quite difficult to engineer. You mentioned a number of offences there that might be brought. So could you give us a full kind of list, as it were, of the types of offences that the Inquisition was interested in, beyond being a Protestant? Yeah, officially, the Inquisition was only supposed to and allowed to investigate offences by baptised Catholics. So it couldn't, in theory, investigate Jews, Muslims, even Protestants who had not been baptised Catholics, for their beliefs and behaviour. And so in that sense, its jurisdiction was restricted to one particular part of the Venetian community. Non-Christians, non-Catholic Christians could be investigated if they were thought to be doing something that challenged, damaged, threatened the Catholic Church. So, for example, uh, interrupting Catholic Church services, trying to convert Catholics to as the church saw it, false beliefs and so on. But generally speaking, if they kept their heads down, they would be okay. But it was interested in more than just, as it were, intellectual beliefs like Protestantism, Calvinism, Lutheranism and so on. A whole range of intellectual beliefs were included, but also including things like atheism, the denial that God existed at all, that any religion was worthwhile. But also things like blasphemy, abuses in the Catholic Church, priests, for example, who exploited the confessional to get involved improperly with their penitents, uh, false claims to be saints or miracle workers for money, things like that, even by Catholics. It was also involved in the censorship of the press and publication, pre-publication censorship, as well as post-publication censorship, and in the prosecution of those who read or owned or bought prohibited books, whether they were good Catholics or not. Offences like magic, worship of demons, witchcraft, necromancy were subject to Inquisition as well. Bad practice, bad Catholic practice, not fasting on fast days, for example. Damaging images of saints and lots of interesting cases of people who, in a rage after losing a game of gambling or something, decided to destroy a local image of the Virgin Mary or something like that, they would be subject as well, even if they were Catholics, for their action. A whole range of sexual offences, adultery, bigamy, polygamy, same-sex relationships, and so on. So a wide range of activities and beliefs. And interestingly, from time to time, they also got involved in things like art, Famous, one of the most famous trials, of course, is the trial of Veronese in 1573, fabulous Venetian painter, for his supper at the House of Levi, which they thought was conveying heretical messages. It certainly wasn't, and he got off. But there's this fascinating trial that art historians like to look at. And there are other trials as well of artists for what they've done for paintings in churches or more paintings and things like that. So it's a wide range of activity. I know by comparison in England, say, in under Mary, that there were Protestants who uh, had not shown appropriate respect to the Mass, for example, or who, uh, you know, turned their back at the wrong moment or hadn't turned up at all. And that could be a case for prosecution. And actually, in many cases, it's these tiny things that lead to burnings, actually. So I, I guess there's some parallel there as well. I think that's right. And of course, you might be denounced for one thing, but the Inquisition would then investigate really your whole life, your relationships. They would hunt down, they would search your house, they'd take away any letters, correspondence, books, talk to your family, to your relations and so on. And often they would put together a much bigger picture than just for that particular offence you might have been denounced for.
millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War, America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 called the Forgotten War? This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History Hit Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So if you look at these trial records, I mean, you've given a sense of what they look like in the archive, but in terms of each individual case, and of course they've completely varied, as you said already, but you've got a moment, have you, where the suspect's being interrogated, witnesses brought, that sort of thing. Is that what the general case construction is like? Yes, that's right. You start with the source of information, the denunciation, the, the letter you track down, you know, the rumour and so on, and you would call in the suspect. Frequently, if it was a serious offence, they might be put in some sort of protective custody in jail from which you could then call them out whenever you wanted for questioning. But they might be allowed to sort of stay in home and just be called in on trust for further questioning when it suited the tribunal. But then they would start to follow up with witnesses of the offence, people named, their relatives and so on. They would look at correspondence, they'd um, deal with their neighbours and so on. They would take legal advice, perhaps. They might make contact with other authorities to see if they knew anything about this person. And gradually, they would put the case together. If necessary, they would engage in torture. Quite a few suspects were tortured to see if there was more information they could reveal under torture that they hadn't revealed without torture. There might be extrajudicial discussions as well. You would find reports from the Inquisitor back to the tribunal saying, I had a private conversation with the suspect the other day in jail, or I called him to my cell in the Dominican convent, and we had a discussion. This is what he said. And that was often a sort of educational exercise as well, where the Inquisitor was trying to convert the suspect back to the true faith as the Inquisitor saw it. So there's a lot of other documents as well, often correspondence, as I say, with other authorities, sometimes the authorities in Rome. And finally, you get a sentence or a decision, at least. The decision might be you're innocent and you can go free. But there are other forms of sentence as well. Possibly you're guilty, but you've shown repentance. So we're going to give you some very mild penalties perhaps just say a few prayers every day for the next two months or something like that. It might be a period of imprisonment. Of course, in the most serious cases, it would be more serious a penalty and it might indeed lead to execution. And all of that would be recorded in the trial. So it seems that being called before the Inquisition must have been absolutely terrifying, even before you get to torture, because your entire life is being overhauled. Everybody you know is being spoken to. Even the shame of that, let alone having done anything wrong, must have been really great. And so much of it seems to rest on the integrity of the Inquisitor as well, especially with those extrajudicial processes. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I suppose that's one of the 
fascinating things about these records because these, as far as we can tell, the records we have were verbatim reports, at least in terms of the interrogations, the questioning of suspects and witnesses, and indeed the torture sessions. These are supposedly verbatim reports and suspects are supposed to, witnesses too, supposed to authenticate them afterwards and say, yes, this is an accurate report of what I said. Quite how this happened remains a little <laughs> in doubt. Whether the notaries kept a very shorthand version and then wrote it up later, or whether they just wrote very fast. There are some interesting records where the notary actually says, whilst I was writing up his last answer, there was this discussion about something else going on. So it sounds as if it was episodic. The question would be asked, suspect or witness would answer, then there'll be a pause and the notary scratched away and then they would start again. But as far as we can tell, they're verbatim. And that's why I think you get this sort of psychological interest in what's going on. There's almost a sort of battle going on, or at least some sort of contest between the questioner, often the inquisitor, but maybe some of the other clerical officials involved in the tribunal, and the suspect or the witness. And each one is thinking second by second almost. What can I say? What should I hide? You can see sometimes when you know what's happened before in the trial, the inquisitor is not revealing information he's got to suspects or witnesses. They're holding back to see what the witness or the suspect might say. On other occasions, you can see, because you know how the trial ends, what the suspect is hiding from the Inquisition and the tribunal. So there's that psychological contest going on. What do I say? What can I say? What should I rephrase in ways that make it look better or worse than it really was? They sound thrilling to read. Are they in Latin or are they in Italian? I mean, how much is what you're getting verbatim vernacular or is it being, obviously it's being translated even by being written down, but how many processes of translation do we need to see here? That's an important point because... The official information, so-and-so was introduced into the tribunal. He was asked his name and his place of residence. That sort of thing is in Latin, and all the official documents are in Latin. But the debate in each tribunal meeting is verbatim, supposedly. Now, that's a problem in Italy because, of course, the inquisitors, the notaries, the lawyers and so on were all educated in traditional, official, humanist Italian Madre lingua, as they say now, a lot of the suspects, of course, only had died. And that's even more significant when you go out of big cities like Venice into the countryside, places like Friuli, where nobody much spoke Italian anyway. They had their own dialects, Friulan, in Friuli, which is almost incomprehensible if you only know Italian. And so the extent to which there is translation from the original language into something that the inquisitors could understand <laughs> is a moot point, I think. And it may be we can never quite get back to the original exact wording because it was sort of being translated into something understandable to the authorities along the way. But all the official documents, including sentences and so on, are in Latin. So you have to have Latin and Italian and then some sense of the local dialect wherever you're working to make sense of them. Yes, these things are certainly not easy. I mean, <laughs> my French stuff sounds much easier by comparison. There was a little bit of Occitan, but French had really kind of spread mostly across the South. So it's more like occasional words and sentences than whole sections. And because they were Protestant, there was no Latin. So you're operating at a much higher level than I was. When this whole process had happened, I mean, did many people come away as innocent? Yes, actually, they did. It's quite hard to do the statistics, but 
it's interesting that, as far as we can tell, only about 2% of all cases that came before the Venetian Inquisition ended in an execution, which is about half the figure for Spain, but that goes up to about 4%, and a third of the figure for the Portuguese Inquisition is about 6%. So it's really quite mild by comparison to other inquisitions, and certainly, I think, to a lot of secular jurisdictions at the time. And I think one reason for that is that the Inquisition was keen, it's what one great Italian historian has called inquisitorial pedagogy, as if the Inquisition is actually involved in a sort of conversion process. They really want to save these people and bring them back to Catholicism, which is why you have these extrajudicial meetings with inquisitors frequently over a long period of time. They might send Jesuits or Dominicans or other priests in to talk to them in prison and things like that, desperately trying to bring them back to Catholicism, which would mean they could let them off with lesser penalty. You really had to be determined and genuinely unrepentant to get yourself executed in the Venetian Inquisition. I never thought that the conclusion of this conversation would be the Inquisition was actually quite benevolent and really what they were trying to, <laughs> trying to do is educate people and help them rather than persecute them. Well, that's true, except, of course, there is a limit to <laughs> what they will tolerate. You know. They want to bring them back to a particular point of view, even if it seems <laughs> quite slow in its activities. Now, the wonderful thing, of course, about these records is that they give us so much information about the institution, but they also give us information, read against the grain, about the individuals who appear before the Inquisition. What kind of details do these records show about people's lives? This is one of the fascinating things. They're full of very detailed information. When anybody is called into the Inquisition, there are some very basic facts about themselves. What is your name? Where do you live? Who do you live with? Where do you work? What is your occupation? Can you read and write? You know, and then moving on, you know, do you know so and so? Have you been in contact with so and so? So you can begin to put together some very basic biometrical information about these people, which of course you can often then check through, for example, tax records in Venice or other judicial processes in the city. And it's possible sometimes to build up quite detailed biographical information about these people. And then the information they give themselves in their testimony, in answer to questions, will tell you a lot about their lives. Venice now is still a very densely built up area. And people tended then and tend now to live in large buildings with multiple occupancy residences. And so you literally hear what your neighbours are saying when they're coming up the stairs. You look across the alleyway between you, which could just be three or four feet away, and see into their rooms. You can stand in your balcony and see what they're doing on their balcony or into their rooms and so on. You can see into their gardens or the courtyards behind their house. And a lot of the information we get is therefore very immediate about people's living styles, their living circumstances, who they know, what their relationships are with their neighbours and so on. And again, you can then begin to build up a fascinating picture, even of the lifestyles and circumstances of people who are not themselves under suspicion. Are there any particular people or cases that have stayed with you? (laughs) There is one fascinating one, which I think is very telling, which is one of my favourite cases, actually. One of the earliest ones I looked at when I was a graduate student, and I still love. 1561, the Venetian government passed a letter to the tribunal in Venice from someone called Giulio Olgiato, who was in Venice. And it was a letter he wrote to his father, who lived in Vicenza, and had obviously been passed back to the government, who then passed it on to the tribunal. 
And in this letter, Julio had reported a rumor he picked up that a servant of a Venetian patrician had accidentally got himself locked in to the convent church of the local frari of the Franciscan observance at San Giobbe in the north of Venice. It seems from his questioning, he'd had a long day, he'd gone in the evening, he'd fallen asleep. And when he woke up, he found the doors locked and everything dark. And he was scared half to death. He didn't know what to do. He was hiding. And then he says, right in the middle of the night, he saw a procession of observant Franciscans coming in with candles and so on. And they were carrying a coffin. And he could hear there was someone inside the coffin still alive, banging and shouting and screaming. And he's scared to death still. And he watches it, he says. They go through the funeral ceremony. They put, they open up <laughs> a hole. They put him in the hole. They cover it over and they go away. And the guy clearly dies in the coffin. <laughs> anyway, he tells people about this. And the government, not surprisingly, in the Inquisition too, is really concerned about this. So are the observant Franciscans, because the story is coming back that the observant Franciscans depend on arms. And they were getting no arms anymore. Rumours gone around that these were murderers and nobody was giving money. They were starving and they were subject to threats of violence and even death threats as they went around the city. And the Inquisition and the government wanted something done about this. So they started calling lots of witnesses, people in the neighbourhood. Everybody in the neighbourhood had heard this rumour. And everybody could tell you who they'd heard it from. I heard it from him. I heard it from her. They'd call in the extra witnesses. They could tell you who they heard it from. But nobody could track down where exactly it started. There was a name going around about who the first person was, but they could never identify who this person was. And in the end, they had to give up on the investigation. The Inquisition published a decree imposing silence on everyone in the parish, saying we must never discuss this case again. And that was really the end of it. They never found out what it was all about. The church authorities assumed that it was a rumour put about by the heretics, by the Protestants. This is 1560s, of course. So I think it tells you a lot about the way people communicate, the mechanics of social interaction within these communities, but also maybe about the way conspiracy theories work. It must be the Protestants who done it. <laughs> they must be responsible. It's some outside demonic force which has caused this problem. And that's one of the ones which struck me very powerfully when I was a graduate student. And still, I don't think anyone's written it up, and I think I really ought to. You really ought to, because that's so interesting in terms of, I mean, so many layers there, thinking about the power of rumour and how the, I mean, conspiracy theory about the Franciscans in the first place, perhaps, or perhaps this terrible thing actually happened. I mean, it shows the, the difficulty of the historian's task to try and unravel these threads and get back to some sort of origin point. It's clear that actually when we're talking about Inquisition records and we think of oh, the power of the Inquisition, we're actually hearing very much about the power of ordinary people. Yeah, I think that's right. It's easy to approach this as a sort of top-down process, isn't it? And here are the inquisitors, the other officials, the legal officials, and, and the other senior clerics who are on the body. They're highly educated, very knowledgeable, trained theologians, canon lawyers, and so on. The inquisitors often have a long history of experience in judicial organizations like this. And you have these poor Venetians scraping a living, working class, living in poor housing, and so on. And it's an easy thing to assume that this is an unequal relationship. And of course, from one point of view, it is. In the end, the authorities have got the power. If you're going to be imprisoned or executed, it's not going to be the inquisitor who's going to be imprisoned or executed. It's going to be the guy who has no power, the woman who lives down the road in some poor housing. 
But that doesn't mean that the suspects, the witness and so on, have no influence or standing or power at all. They are also controlling this process through what they say. And of course, as communities, they're also powerful in the sense that they have to feed information into the Inquisition. In the end, what the Inquisition receives comes from below, including these rumours about the Franciscans. That wasn't invented by the authorities. That did actually come from below. Yes, there's so much complicity in the practice of being oppressed, if that's what we want to call it. So if that is the case, if we've got a situation where individuals and communities can contribute to or hamper the process, should that lead us to conclude that the Inquisition, and I'm completely aware of the loaded terms as I ask this, but I'm going to ask it all the same, that the Inquisition was not a success? I suppose from the Inquisition's point of view, ultimately, it was a success. I mean, Venice remained a Catholic city right the way through to the end of the Republic in the later 18th century. Of course, it's still a largely Catholic city now. So I think if we were to have an Inquisitor in front of us now and we asked him, he'd say, well, look at it now. It's still a Catholic city. The 20th century, two patriarchs of Venice became Pope. It's still a very influential place in the Catholic Church. And in fact, the Veneto, the northeast of Italy, remains a very strongly Catholic part of Italy, unlike some other parts of Italy, I think. On the other hand, you can say all this stuff is going on in Venice. And when you move into the late 17th century and the 18th century, and historians who've looked at the records from that period rather more than I have, are able to identify Venice as a city where later ideas, ideas which are certainly questionable in terms of Catholic theology, scientific ideas, philosophical ideas, are circulating really without control, as indeed are books. The church really loses control of the book trade, partly because it's just too big to control. Even in the 16th and 17th centuries, the Inquisition is not really able to control the circulation of books in Venice. There's been a wonderful project in the past few years on monastic libraries in Venice, which was a joint project by a lot of Italian historians. And they went into a lot of monasteries and friaries and so on convents in Venice, and they looked at their historic libraries. And it was amazing how many prohibited books they had on their shelves. In it. So from one point of view, yes, it was successful in the terms you're talking about. They kept it a Catholic city. But did they control the spread of unorthodox thought and maybe unorthodox behaviour? Probably not to a very great extent, though maybe to some extent. They would probably have thought that was worthwhile anyway. And one final thing about the working of this, which is that I found that people used the local authority often for their own ends. Have you come across that? Unfortunately, yes. It's one of the several depressing things about this subject, I suppose. It is frequently the case that uh, you can track back allegations, denunciations and so on to some sort of personal business rivalry denunciations, allegations and so on, emerge out of some failed business arrangement <laughs> that people have put together, a broken emotional relationship, for example, a local rivalry or quarrel, something within a family, a massive disagreement between neighbours, often about technical things like uh, your flat is producing too much sewage and it's blocking up the drains and things like that. That was a very interesting case. They had to bring the local health board in and so on, see what was going on. But often you can also trace these rivalries through different Venetian tribunals. So you can sometimes start with an Inquisition tribunal denunciation, but then you can trace it back to other 
allegations to the tax authorities, to the health authorities, to the housing authorities, which are all lay organisations, of course. And you can see the denunciations bouncing back and forth, one against another, across a period of time. When the Inquisition found that and discovered what was going on, they normally just dismissed the whole thing and said, we're not going to get involved in this. And of course, it's worth remembering that this is particularly easy when you can make anonymous denunciations. And the Venetian government itself encouraged anonymous denunciations. So these sorts of to and fro rivalries and competitions through the judicial system are very common in the city. Yes, absolutely crucial, isn't it? Whether it's anonymous, how much they're encouraging and validating that, or whether they are making sure that you've got to have two people who put their own name to it before they investigate, all that makes such a difference to the sort of archive we have. So I know that you've just returned from Venice again, and it feels from what you're saying that there still remains much to be done. There's lots of possible work for future PhD students here. What do you think are the remaining questions about the Venetian Inquisition and its people and the people it tried? I think given the size of the archive, I think there's always going to be lots more to do and different ways of approaching it. Certainly since I began decades ago, there's been a huge increase in the number of people who have worked on Inquisitions, not just in Venice, of course, but across the Catholic world. There's still a lot to do, not least in places like South America and Peru and so on. But within that big world of Inquisition studies, I think there's been a lot of good work on trying to put together some statistics and get decent indexes of what's there and who's involved and so on. That's been fantastically valuable. There have been a lot of very good studies on individual types of offence, witchcraft, heresy and so on. But I think there's still space for serious studies even of individual tribunals, where you can draw on these comparative studies to make sense of what's going on in a single tribunal, but you're looking at the whole range of cases and looking at it as well as much from the inquisitor's point of view as from the suspect's point of view. We've started to find out more about the international organisation of these tribunals within the Spanish, Portuguese and Italian worlds. And I think there's still a lot more to do there about the way they work. Indeed, some of the questions you've been asking, I think, about what we can tell from these trials when we look at both the authorities and the suspects and we look at them in a comparative context and I think over a chronological period as well, from the 15th century up to the 18th century, I think there's still a lot more to do. It sounds like a very exciting and fruitful field of study and I'm so grateful to you for introducing it to us, at least. I hope that we'll hear more about it in the future. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at NotJustTudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.